the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast. We'll help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey in helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Brew Pub podcast. I'm your host, Michael Camp. The title of today's podcast is Why I Left Evangelicalism, Church, and Purity Culture. It's about our very special guest. We have someone who was uh, became a famous evangelical at the age of 22 when he wrote his first book, Joshua Harris. I want to welcome you to our podcast. Oh, thanks so much for uh, inviting me into the conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're, I'm really uh, uh, thrilled that you're with us today, Josh. Um, uh, we're going to go through your fascinating journey in just a moment. But before we get into that, uh, I want to share a little a bit about why I wanted you with us today. Um, although we've never formally met in person, we do have a lot in common. Uh, as you know, Josh, I first saw you when you were only, what, 15 or 16 years old? Oh, boy. Uh, Way at back a, in the day. Yeah, at a Christian homeschool conference in 1990, uh, my wife and I were preparing to go to the mission field in Africa. And of course, we were going to homeschool our kids. So we wanted to get some equipping on that area. And Christian homeschool was a big thing. It was just starting back then, but it was getting really big. And mm-hmm. so we went to that conference and saw you. Um, you were very impressive for 15 or 16, very confident, articulate. So we thought, oh, yeah, homeschool is great. Okay, so (laughs) (laughs) Um, as a young evangelical, um, uh, I was part of the what we might call the purity culture, which was around before you wrote your book, by the way, Um, it just had different terms. Um, Thank you for thank you for uh, for reminding me of that, because I can. I can take on a lot of guilt for people who don't know <laughs> yeah, the you historical don't, context. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, you don't. You didn't. You didn't start at all. Let's put it that oh, way. It, that those ideas and notions were going around for a long time, uh, and I I got burned by those notions myself. So, um, both of us were professional ministers in one sense. You were you were a pastor of a large church. Uh, I was a missionary. Um, your church was part of the denomination uh, that I was in for six years. Uh, back in the 1980s, it was back then it was called People of Destiny. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I don't know if it's still now, but it was changed to Sovereign Grace Ministries. Um, so we both know a lot of the leaders of that uh, movement, CJ Mahaney, Larry Tomzak, many more. Mm-hmm. And, and then finally, we, we both deconstructed um, from evangelical Christianity. And I think we both have a vision to help others do the same and find a place of peace after their experience. So I wanted to start off um, 
and and go back to that homeschooling era and right. in your life. What was it like being homeschooled by conservative Christian parents and that uh, burgeoning 1980s, 90s Christian homeschool movement? Well, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, it was all that I I knew, so I had nothing to compare it to. Right. I just thought it was uh, the normal way of the, the world. But we weren't only a homeschool family. We were a homeschool leadership family. So my dad was a very uh, significant speaker, teacher in the homeschool movement. He did his workshops across the country, he spoke to tens of thousands of families over the years. So it was a, a kind of an even more, I think, unique uh, experience in that it wasn't just what we did for school. It was our family business. It was my dad's calling. There was a sense in which loving homeschooling, being committed to homeschooling was essential to the survival of our family. So when I was right. 13 years old and really wanted to go to school because I wanted to, you know, be near these cute girls, that was a big deal. There were huge conversations around that. And ultimately, my parents did not allow me to, to go to school. And obviously, they were, you know, they were motivated by what they felt was best for me spiritually and all those types of things. But there was a real, there was a real pressure and, and expectation that, that came along with that. But yeah, it was, you know, we were always a little bit of this, the odd family at the church. We attended a very mainstream evangelical church. Uh, I was involved in the youth group there. I think I was maybe only one of a handful of homeschool families in the mm -hmm. church. Mm -hmm. So it's just a, you're just a little bit on the fringe for sure. And when I first started, uh, homeschooling was still kind of mildly illegal, I, I would say. Uh, and so the, the huge movement side of it was something that kind of snowballed over time. Right. Yeah. Back then it was just getting started. Uh, I remember going to that conference and, you know, hearing about uh, the legal issues and how they were right. going to try to solve that and, and, you know, promote legislation for to protect homeschoolers and so forth. So um, it's it, it it's it's interesting uh, because that movement really, in my mind, um, started what I would call the 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 note the the tendency for evangelicals to always come up with their own world and always come up mm -hmm. with their own version of everything. And uh, uh, what one of the things that struck me at that conference was that people were actually talking about as if if you did not homeschool your kids and you were mm. a Christian, mm -hmm. you were not being a good godly parent. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you, you bring that up because I, I don't know the exact history of, of how this unfolded in evangelicalism, but you know, Christian universities, Christian colleges, I think are sort of the first wave of that in the, I don't know if that was the the thirties or forties or fifties exactly, but you're right. It's like that continuation of this idea of pull away from the culture, create your own. So then you have the Christian school movement where parents are, you know, forming their own Christian schools. And then homeschooling is like the next expression of that and step of that. And what's fascinating about it is it really becomes this pretty tightly connected network on a state level and then a national level within churches. So it's like you yeah, have all these right. different churches different denominations. And then within each church, maybe you have 
one, two, three, whatever homeschool families. And they're very committed. They're very zealous. They take their faith so seriously that they're willing to have mom stay home, you know, be, be odd, be a little strange and so on. And so what that, what that does in terms of the power of that network, and then even the influence of that network, because those types of people are also people who get involved in local politics and they're concerned about the power of the state because they don't want to lose their kids and they don't want their kids taken away from them. So it's just really interesting to see the, the different um, ways that I think that shaped different church movements and, and then shaped even movements like the purity culture. I think it injected a lot of very conservative ideas into the mainstream. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, the other thing, uh, as you, you know, were, heck, you were only 15 or 16 at that time. Uh, you got, uh, you grew up, uh, you started to um, uh, uh, engage with society as an adult, and you wrote a book. And mm-hmm. that, that book was called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Mm-hmm. And we'd just like to hear a little bit about the story behind uh, you writing that book and what uh, how it portrayed a purity culture and then why you changed your mind about it and, and the, the advice you gave in that book. Well, it's interesting. I, I think that the ideas in I Kiss Dating Goodbye are another example of that pull away from the culture and create your own version of things. So homeschool families, and it's also very connected to, I think, the homeschool movement in many ways. Homeschool families pulled their kids out of school. Let's do school at home. Then their kids started becoming teenagers and they needed to deal with dating and romance and sex. And it was that same impulse. Wait a second. Dating takes romance and relationships outside of the home. Teenagers by themselves, you know, sexual impurity, compromise, which was a huge thing back then. I mean, I think it always is in the church, but there was this sense of an onslaught of secularism through music, through MTV, through media, all those kinds of things. Um, there were so many battles raging around abortion, so much fear around AIDS, which tied into people's view of gay people. And so all of that fear, you mix all that together, homeschooling is a way to pull your kids out of the influence of the public schools and secularism courtship became a buzzword and a huge topic within homeschooling, which was parents should be leading this process of young people getting married. Dating is dangerous. Dating is bad. Right. So I, I grew up around those ideas. Um, I mean, you know, I was the oldest of my parents' kids. And so I was the kind of the first one that was dealing with this. I was sneaking out and, you know, making out with girls and doing these different things. And they were wanting me to, love the Lord and walk a pure path. And they were right. giving me Elizabeth Elliot's book, Passion and Purity, oh, right. and, you know, telling one. me, telling me these different things. And I just rejected it. I was secretly dating this girl for two years. Yeah. Uh, she was a friend of the family and they loved her, but they didn't know what we were doing, you know, in the car when I dropped her off uh, at the end of the night. Right. So, so essentially what took place for me is that I reached this point at the end of that high school dating relationship where I felt tremendous guilt that I'd almost had sex, that I had broken this girl's heart. And it's almost like the, all of this teaching that had been there and that I'd been hearing, it was inside of me and it really activated in a real sense of shame and guilt. And 
I, I came to this moment of wanting to serve the Lord, wanting to do something for, for God with my life and dating was sort of like the one thing that I wasn't giving up. I mean, that's passion, that's passion and purity, you know, submitting right. your love life right. to the, the Lordship of Christ. It's it your stumbling block. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the, yeah, this holdout, this holdout of right. um, sin and so on. And so I just threw myself into essentially imbibing all these ideas that I'd rejected listening to that. And at the time I was speaking at my dad's conferences. I was publishing a magazine called new attitude for homeschool teens. And I started writing about the topic more theoretically, like dating versus courtship. What do you guys think of this? Mm -hmm. uh, this is before the internet was huge. This is before you could connect with people. So a magazine like this was a big way that, you know, 5,000 plus subscribers across the country could talk to other homeschool teenagers, hear what other families were doing. And that just blew up. Like the fact that I was talking about that. And then I, I became even more convicted and I realized like, I want to, I want to stop dating myself and then decided to speak on this. So I started going around to these homeschool conferences you talked about and speaking on, I kiss dating goodbye. Uh -huh. And again, that cassette tape just exploded can you believe I said cassette tape? That's how long ago this was. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and I don't remember the exact timing of this, but like it got picked up by by Dr. Dobson's focus on the family oh, and right. played and and so on. Okay. And and so then simultaneously, I pursued a publisher. I got picked up by a publisher. I published the book, and these ideas that were in this subculture of homeschooling just exploded into the Christian consciousness where those homeschool families were picking up copies, giving it to friends, people who, you know, had never heard about the idea of courtship. I kiss dating goodbye was sort of like a, a first, you know, entry drug, um, if you will, to a lot of those ideas mm -hmm. and uh, ended up becoming a, you know, a bestseller and, a, and a, a way for purity culture to really get popularized. Right. It really put it on the map more. I mean, like I said, it, it was already around. I had that, you know, teaching that I heard and from various circles as well. And, and really it's this notion as well that, oh, uh, God is, um, if you're godly, uh, you know, you of course want to be sexually pure and wait till marriage and, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, like for, for our, and our circles, it didn't go so far as don't kiss anyone, but, you know, you had to be really careful because if you did one thing, it could lead to another, which would lead to yeah. another, which would lead to sex, which would lead to is sinful and et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then you had this notion that, well, God is going to find you, your spouse and lead you to your spouse. And so you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to go out and search God. You just pray and God will mm. lead you. And his will is to, you know, bring you someone that he's got in store. So it kind of took the, you know, the responsibility off you. I don't really have to do that much. I just have to wait for God to show me someone and then said, okay, bingo, that's the one. And then, and then, so you're not, you don't have to date. You just have to kind of <laughs> mill around and search and, and, and discern what God's will is. And then you find the right one. And, and so we didn't call it courtship, but then that came later and that mm. was kind of developed into a whole idea and a process, I guess, of, uh, you know, how that's supposed to work. And, and it didn't it get just so legalistic. And I mean, it was just like, so nitpicky after a while. 
Uh, you couldn't even talk to someone. If you talk to someone too long, someone of the opposite sex too long, then, you know, he was like, what's wrong with you? You're, you're, you're hanging out with that person too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really is true. I mean, you, you have these parents who, at least my parents grew up in the, the, you know, the sixties, free love, all the ideas there. There's a huge pendulum swing where they're reacting to that, not wanting that for their kids. And I mean, as is often the case, especially in religious communities, high levels of manipulation, both promise and threat used to try to get the next generation to buy into uh, the ideas and to, you know, deny their their fleshly desires. So they're, they're trying to fight off these sex drives and this natu these natural, uh, you know, <laughs> motivations, good motivations uh, with this is so dangerous. This is so bad, you know, and, and at the same time too, there, there's this whole political side to it where, you know, the Southern Baptist convention starts true love waits, this massive movement oh, to get right. kids to promise their virginity, right. which right. I encountered, like I encountered that before I even encountered all of the, the courtship nonsense in mm -hmm. homeschooling. I encountered yeah. that in my youth group, right? We were having all these different talks and so on. And that was fear, fear of, teen pregnancies, which would lead to abortion, which again was the biggest issue, one of the biggest political issues in the church. You know, the, the fear about AIDS at literally fear that you would die kind of a thing. And so mm -hmm. that, that fear and those political aspirations and push for power shaped the conversation that teens were being exposed to. And so then you, you know, you try to have a kind of practical outworking of, okay, if, if sex is the worst possible thing that could happen, well, then how should we now live? You know what I mean? And right. so there were the answers to that were things like I kiss dating goodbye. And I kiss dating goodbye was sort of the most popular and idealistic, youthful, naive expression of that. But it caught on because parents loved it and leaders loved it because it was a young person that was saying these things. And it was challenging problems in dating. And let's face it, there are always problems in dating. Every generation, right. exactly. you know, is is moaning about what a pain in the butt dating is. And so there are lots of things you can you can critique. And so those ideas just, you know, morphed into, as you said, a lot of really legalistic practices. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think I res resonate with this notion that, uh, you know, there was there were problems in the, uh, you know, sexual revolution of the 60s. And mm. and, and and, you know, for, in my in my journey, you know, I, I was pretty much um, uh, rebellious. I don't know. I don't like the word rebellious, but I was partying and I had sex in high school. And, you know, <laughs> right. and then when I became a quote, a born again Christian, it was like, oh, wow, you know, you're, you found the truth and you've got to change your way and mm -hmm. ways and be pure. And God, you know, can't really bless you unless you, you know, start jumping through these hoops. And right. so there was a pendulum swing from one extreme all the way over to another mm -hmm. extreme. And I think that's probably one of the big problems with evangelicalism is just the way that, that there's just a, uh, a paranoia almost that comes out of, of instead of a balanced view of anything sex or whatever you get these very black and white ways of looking at the world and and mm -hmm. and how and and addressing how to uh, behave in the world so mm -hmm. that's that's what happened and and really what what were some of the you know the dangerous or the harmful things that 
that uh, were in that purity culture that you had to change your mind about? What what are there some of the implications of that teaching? Yeah, we I you asked about me coming to a point of changing my mind, and and it it came really too late. I think is the first thing to say. It wasn't something that I saw immediately. Um, I've now reached the point where I've apologized for the books, unpublished the books, and really, you know, renounced the ideas in purity culture. But it was an unfolding process because it went deep for me. Like I really, I really believed it. You know, like when you really believe something, it's not uh, the easiest thing to to shift right. your mind and change your mind. Um, and also, uh, you know, it was, it was a huge part of my identity. So it wasn't just an idea that I picked up. It, it was, you know, an idea that I promoted that I was identified with. It was why I was an author and, and so on. So it took a long time for me to, to come around to being open to question and rethink those ideas. But, you know, after I wrote the book, I, I went into being a pastor, went into a movement that really, a church movement that really embraced the ideas in the book and had, had embraced those ideas long before I showed up. Um, and I went into kind of, you know, defend the party line in a lot of ways on a lot of different areas without really thinking for myself, without standing up to different wrong ideas. And so it wasn't an environment where I was able to freely question. It was kind of like added an even extra layer of, of pressure there. So it wasn't until that um, the, the foundations of that church movement started to crumble. It wasn't until I experienced a lot of painful, um, you, know, you know, just experiencing mistakes at myself as a leader, seeing the problems in the movement that I was a part of, uh, seeing the pain that had been caused by our way of of approaching religion and faith, that I started to see, oh my goodness, my books are a part of this. My books are, you know, right in the mix of of this really unhealthy culture that we've created. And so, moving away from that, actually stepping down from being a pastor, uh, moving across the the continent, um, putting myself in a, a context of study and listening, and so on. All of those things were part of finally listening to people saying, here's, here's the negative fallout. And then the negative fallout were things like, well, first of all, you know, just not having any autonomy to, to make decisions about this, this feeling that God has said, there's only one way to do this. So that's huge, huge lack of freedom. But then it leads to decisions like breaking up relationships because we're not ready to, you know, get married, or this person isn't as, as zealous about purity as I am, or whatever it might be, which later leads to huge regrets. Like, oh, we had, we were compatible. Why didn't I, why didn't I stay with that person? That kind of thing, or right. not dating uh, many people, you know, marrying the first person you get into a serious relationship with. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then looking back and going, wait a second, why did I marry this person? We're so incompatible. <laughs> you know, all those kinds of things. It also had big implications for people's uh, view of sex. So sure, you have stories of people who, you know, they court, they're happily married, they're both virgins, it works out, you know, wonderfully in the end. But there are also many, many stories of people who save themselves, deny their sexuality for years, fight against it, you know, all those things, and then they get married, and they're supposed to turn on their sex drives suddenly. And huge issues of incompatibility, uh, really 
frustrating experiences of, of intimacy within marriage. And so those, those types of things take time to come to the surface. Um, they're very private things. People don't really talk about <laughs> immediately. Right. You don't talk, you don't, you don't stand up the, you know, the month after you get married and say, Hey, you know what? Sex is terrible. And none of this stuff worked. <laughs> like those are things you just, you just internalize, you try to deal with you, yeah. you know, all those kinds of things. And so about, you know, 15, 10, 15, 20 years after uh, the, the book was released, people started to talk about it. And then the internet facilitate people sharing their stories and all of those things happening simultaneously was, was a part of the conversation that I joined. So I, I really want to give huge credit to, you know, people who are writing about this online, people who are challenging this, people who are calling out purity culture long before they really educated me and trained me and challenged me. And it was, it was hard. I didn't, I went kicking and screaming. I definitely was not this like wise uh, person that just said, Oh, you've got a good argument there. I think I'm going to rethink my position. It was a lot of personal pain. It was a lot of conversation and, uh, and a real journey for me. I can imagine that. Yeah. And that's always the way it is. It's like you said, it was not just uh, your ideas, but it was, it was a part of yourself, part of your family. There's like, mm. it was who you were as a person and, and giving up those things and you were a sincere believer in them. So it's kind of like the way you come out of evangelicalism as a whole. It's, it's the right. same idea, the same notion of how you have to deal with those things. And most of us uh, don't really, aren't really willing to change our mind about things unless something very painful happens or something emotional happens that kind of wakes us up and says, yeah, you're, this is right. So there's some, I need to rethink these things. Right. So right. let's pivot a little bit. Um, you mentioned you got involved with a church movement and we've talked about that. It was, it was called people of destiny and then sovereign mm -hmm. grace ministries. And, uh, I was in that movement, uh, in the 1980s and, uh, CJ, a guy named CJ Mahaney, uh, was one of the leaders. Larry Tomczak was another leader. It was a, they didn't, they always used to say, we're not a denomination. <laughs> and yeah. then, and then after a while you go, wait a minute, you, you, we really are a denomination. You're acting like one. Right. But anyways, I've always wanted to, to learn how you got connected to that church movement. How did you meet CJ mm -hmm. and finally become a pastor of covenant life church and, and outside Washington, DC and I suppose CJ was your mentor for, for many years. How, how did that all come about? Yeah, CJ was my, my mentor. And I, you know, I talked about him as, as being a, a father in the faith to me and uh, was very enamored with him and followed him uh, really blindly, I would say. But I was traveling and speaking at conferences. I was publishing this magazine for homeschool teens and his daughters were subscribers. So he was aware of, of me in some form. Mm -hmm. One of the churches in this movement, which I don't know at that time, maybe it was like 50s to 100 churches yeah. um, across the country. They were all very connected. They had an apostolic structure. So you had um, pastors who were, for, for just random reasons, chosen to be apostles. They just had more charismatic dynamic gifts and leadership gifts who would be leaders over groups of churches. So whole regions would look to a pastor slash apostle. Right. And yep. CJ was the, uh, the lead apostle. He was the team leader of the, of the team of apostles. So they would, they would always say that this, these were small, small a apostles. They don't, we don't write scripture. 
So that was <laughs> yeah, right. So they, so we're small a. Yeah, right. we're small a, but yeah. uh, we're working on capitalizing that a. That's that would have been next. No, um, so they they uh, they had all these these network of churches which were very very close to each other. The the friendships between the pastors were very tight, and these congregations would gather together at special conferences called celebrations, where right. mm-hmm. you know you would all come and worship and have teaching over the weekend, kind of a thing. <clears throat> So I was hosted by one of these churches in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And one of this, one of our subscribers wanted to bring us in. She convinced the pastors to host this conference. I went there and spoke and it was one of our biggest conferences. And, and I observed the depth of relationship and passion and zeal of this, of this movement through them. So they started sending me uh, cassette tape series of CJ preaching. I get there and see the the history that they have, the friendship that they have. And it was very appealing. Yes, it is very appealing. And I think that that's the thing that um, you know I'm I grapple with myself is just my own culpability and responsibility for choosing to throw my lot in with uh, people of destiny. And a, and a huge part of it was there was so much momentum and excitement and love and servanthood and it was the kind of place where you'd go into these churches and you can't even imagine how lavish they are with encouragement, the way that they're purposeful to build each other up and encourage one another. And it's like, it's like if you're parched in the desert and you walk in and somebody gives you a cold glass of water, you're just like, this is amazing. Like these people are amazing. And they were so serious about applying their faith. It was like, we got to live out our faith. We got to put it into practice in community, uh, which you know, for me, at uh, I think I was like nineteen, twenty at the time, was so exciting because there was a sense of here are people who are taking doctrine seriously, and in contrast to the churches that I'd been a part of, <clears throat> excuse me, in contrast to the churches I've been a part of, this just seemed so much more faithful, that seemed like it had so much more integrity, you know, the churches that I'd been a part of kind of poo-pooed doctrinal distinctions, like we don't need to fight about Calvinism versus Arminianism. We don't need to, you know, get into all these kind of details. And and PDI, uh, People of Destiny, which became Sovereign Grace, was sharp on those things. They were taking a stand, you know, we are reformed in our theology. The gospel's got to be the center therapeutic, you know, practices are, are attacking the gospel. So it just was like, man, these guys are serious, you know? And so for me at that age, it was just, it, it tapped into, now I look back and understand this. It tapped into this desire to be safe, to be with the right tribe, to be with the people who were truly faithful. And it was always that push the same thing in the homeschool movement of being the most faithful of the faithful. It's not yes. enough to be in the church. You need to be the homeschool family in the church. It's not enough to be in evangelicalism. Right. You need to be in the wing of evangelicalism yeah. that is, you, you know, you, complementarian you, and, you know, all those kinds of things. So, yeah, and you need to be on the cutting edge. And, and for me, it was, it's, it was the same experience for me going into, into PDI. I mean, they had that same, you know, what you're describing sounds so familiar. It probably got, you know, back when you got in, it got more, uh, even more so. But, but, the, but on the other hand, um, you know, th- these are all, you know, it sounds so good, but you've also got 
the notions that start to rise up that uh, and one of those notions was, you know, we're really the only church or movement mm. or one of the very few that are doing it right. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I just remember uh, a story of, uh, I, I would try to bring people to church. We've I got to go into a great church and you'd bring them. And, and I was on visitation duty. And uh, I remember the first sign for me that something was amiss was when I went to uh, visit people who had uh, Sunday evening, they'd come Sunday morning and we, I don't know how we got their address, but we went to their address, knocked on the door and said, hey, you know, we're from the church. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Can we answer any questions? And, and you know, we talked. So there's this one guy that I talked to and I said, well, what do you think? You're going to be coming back to join us next Sunday or another time? And he said very bluntly, no, no, Mike, I'm not coming back. And I said, why? And he said, well, actually, I really picked up on a, an attitude. You guys kind of come across like, you, you know, you're the only church that really matters. <laughs> oh, so, so wise, so discerning. Yeah. And I was, that was my first red flag, you know? So, I mean, you know, you got into this church, um, you know, an exciting on the surface, uh, uh, an exciting movement, but as you know, there was a, a dark side, what, what, what was going on underneath and what, what kind of helped you see that later on? Well, again, I, I became a part of the church. Uh, you see, I got to know CJ it's at some leadership conferences. Um, I was encouraged by the pastors at the, at the church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania to approach him and ask if I could be discipled by him. Mm -hmm. You know, there were prophetic words about me needing to be mentored and you know i needed to be sharpened and i needed someone to help me do that and and I, i'm just observing this context it's such a bubble but it, it, i'm observing this context where again everyone's self-congratulatory we're we're doing the work of the lord this is the greatest place on earth you right. know we're that we're the ones that have both charismatic practice and reformed theology the best of all worlds come together yep putting it into practice in community. And, and you're absolutely right. There was this incredible self-righteous strain of we, we're not perfect. We're humble. We know we're sinners, but we're, we've got something that that's that other people don't have, you know, so it's always cloaked in a false humility. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, the, that's the case in so many of these different church movements. I mean, I listened to the Christianity today podcast, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, which was a, another movement that was oh, yeah, that's taking off Seattle. at the same yeah it was taking off at the the same time that our church mm -hmm. movement was really taking off but the same story that yep. same kind of exclusivity that same kind of um you know sense that we we're the best type of church and if you move away from from our church and go to another city then you need to go to a city that has one of our churches right and so it's very much a franchise mindset all these churches are are kind of the same and they have this top down power structure and so on I didn't see any of those things. All that I, I was just enamored with the vitality, how dynamic it was, how happy everyone was, what amazing, you know, families and the friendship between the pastors was so incredible. And I would just say, as a, you know, a young person, I was, I was ambitious. I wanted to be at a place where I was accepted and honored and loved. And CJ basically promised me a pathway to, 
to leadership and just said, listen, you are absolutely called. You're called to be a leader. You're called to be a pastor. It's evident. So I just, it gave me this sense of, okay, purpose. Someone, someone's telling me what God's plan for my life is, you know, and that's incredibly, it's incredibly comforting to have someone who everyone is looking to as sort of an evangelical Pope in this movement say to you, I know what God's purpose for you is join me. And so I just gave up everything and moved across the country and literally moved into CJ's basement. And, and I loved it. I mean, I was, I was, I was the, you know, the heir apparent, I was um, respected and honored and began to be trained to be a pastor. And it, it kept me from having to do something that I think I was, I was scared of, which I didn't even admit to myself, which was go to college, go to seminary, you know, put myself in these settings of learning that I'd never been a part of as a homeschooler. Right. And I, and the model that I'd received from my dad, God bless him, was learn from people who are doing what you want to do, sit at their feet. You don't need a, a normal educational model. And I mean, I, I don't think you have to go to college to, to, to achieve success or, uh, you know, a happy life, but I essentially skipped over any kind of context where you had a marketplace of ideas, where you had people challenging your thinking, where you're challenged to think for yourself. I went from being homeschooled and being in my parents' home and their you know, role as leaders to moving into the home of the leader of a movement and being groomed to be the next leader. And there was no period of time where I was saying, let me ask some hard questions. Let me push back. Let me dig deeper into these things for myself. I just foolishly, foolishly just embraced all of it, took all of it on and became a spokesperson for it. So that's, you know, that's on me. I was, I was 21 years old. I was an adult. I, you know, I chose those things, but I look back and I'm just like, that was so stupid. It was so stupid for me not to um, you know, come to doctrinal convictions myself. It was so stupid for me not to dig into, you know, the history of this church. I was just even thinking like, when you buy a house, you get a home inspection. You know, I joined myself to a church. I didn't do a church inspection. I didn't say, you know what, I'd like to talk to 15 people who have left the church. I just think it'd be good for me to, to hear from them. You know, like I didn't do any of those things. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. You know, or I I want to talk to like the people that, that I keep hearing about from CJ and other leaders of how, you know, unfaithful and those guys left all those kinds of things. You know what? I want to interview Larry Tom, Zach and Che on and this long list of people, you know, kind of the bodies under the bus. Let me talk to those people because I should hear their side of the story. But again, I didn't have, I didn't have the there are two sides to a story. You're a young person, really. Oh man. You didn't have the wisdom and you were, it was groomed in you. I mean, that, that was the, the way it was drilled into people Mm -hmm. that, you know, actually that what the model was, you get trained by PDI and you don't need to go to seminary necessarily. So, (laughs) you know, we've we've already got the doctrine all, you know, figured out and everything. So just come to us for your education. Well, it's, it's so interesting because you're exactly right. Like, the year that I moved to Maryland was the year that they were launching the pastor's college. Yes. Which was being spearheaded by Brent Detweiler, who Mm -hmm. was CJ's Mm -hmm. at that time, like number two man um, just loved and worshiped CJ and was an apostle on the team. And he was helping to launch the, the pastor's college. 
and you know that was that was their way of of you know providing doctrinal training and so you asked about what was going on under the surface i mean what i didn't know was that the whole storyline of sovereign grace this idea that larry tomzak had humbly stepped aside and acknowledged that cj was a better leader no, actually, it didn't take place like that at all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In fact, there was a huge power struggle over CJ's desire to take the movement towards Calvinism and reform yeah. theology. Right. Larry wasn't a, you know, a theologically minded person, but he was uncomfortable with some of those t- types of things. And then there was a relational strain and, and breakup that was happening underneath the, the surface where people were threatening Larry and his son because of, you know, teenage sinful activity of his oh yes i remember that story so all this stuff none i didn't know any of those things yeah all that i knew was oh what a shining example of humility yeah and And, you know everyone's acknowledged cj's role right and and so you know it took years for those things to come out and then issues of sexual abuse that i had you know no idea of at the time but all of the 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 problems that were taking place were so tied to this arrogance that we're the best thing there is. And then take that another step. Pastors are the best thing in the context. Like we are called, we're gifted, we're anointed. We're able to lead through any situation. Our opinion on, on these different things is so valued and trusted. And we're men, by the way. <laughs> and we're not, yeah, no women, only men. Right. Yeah, yeah. there was that whole thing. So you know, you, you, you said you didn't know everything. Well, if you had come to, to me at that time or anyone in our mission uh, group in our PDI church in California, it was called Abundant Life Community Church in Pasadena, we would have told you a story. And that story would have been uh, uh, along the lines of, you know, underco- under, under um, uh, re- uh, revealing the dark side <laughs> mm-hmm. of what was some of the things that were going on. I mean, it was just, it, just like you uh, explained. Uh, I'll give you one example. There was this woman who was part of our missions group, and we were trying to get PDI to get become more missions minded and right. know, send missionaries out and plant churches. And, and so we started a missions group. Uh, a guy named Rich Slimbach, who teaches at Azusa Pacific right uh, now, was was the leader, and, and you know he he talked with CJ and Che, and and we tried to get this going for a, for the denomination, and and our church in California was the one that was kind of like the prototype to start this, and we sent out our first mission team to the Philippines, and uh, what happened was, long story short. The apostles, you know, you talked about they think they're apostles. Well, they went out and visited this mission team uh, the first few after the first few months, and they basically had a totally different view of what the philosophy of the of the mission uh, uh, group had, and there and they started to to um, basically exert control over this mission team. And say, you know, we're the apostles. We're the ones that really are going to make decisions on X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And the pressure will be off you. It's on us. And and but these people didn't understand what cross-cultural missions was all about. They were no. very ethnocentric, and uh, they just didn't know. And so that was such a it was such a bad experience uh, that this whole mission team just left the Philippines and quit. <laughs> they just said we did not sign up for this. Mm. 
This wow. was not what we signed up for. Uh, and, and so our church, we were naive and we didn't realize how much control that the, the, the rest of the denomination wanted to have on what, what our little church was doing. And mm -hmm. so that's just one example of, of the kinds of things that were going on um, that if you had known about back then, you, you know, you might've, you know, thought, oh, okay, well, I better, you know, figure out what's really going on and understand uh, it's, there's a lot of good things, but under the surface, mm -hmm. you're covering up a lot of things. So, well, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just was going to say, you know, I, I, I look back at that time and I, I don't even know if I would have had the capacity to see how yeah, right. broken and wrong that approach to leadership was. Yeah, you know, because you, right. yeah, you layer on these ideas about yeah, you know, about well, male headship. You right. layer on ideas about pastoral authority. You layer on apostolic authority, and if you put yourself in that strange, you know, twisted uh, worldview, it makes sense. Like, okay, yeah, of course, of course, we should you know have the answers here. But I think so many of the problems that that ultimately led to you know the explosion in the and problems in sovereign grace were tied to tight control mm -hmm. by pastors in local churches tight control by apostles of of local churches and manipulation and then the withholding of information from others because they think they have all the answers right you know yeah and so i mean i i, I look back on that you know, Sovereign Grace is uh, really known for and has been challenged by lots of different movements and leaders when it comes to the whole sexual abuse scandal that unfolded. Mm -hmm. But that's a kind of a classic example of, you know, for years, this movement didn't have women involved in any level of leadership. Mm -hmm. Like when I think back to the mistakes, even mistakes that I participated in as a leader when it came to reporting sexual abuse, we didn't have women in the room. Women weren't allowed to be elders. I mean, <laughs> they weren't allowed to be leaders, let alone elders. They, you know, they, they, they weren't in the, in the room for these key kind of conversations. I think they would have brought so much wisdom. Oh we, yeah. And we, we didn't have any other kind of experts involved. You know, we thought that we were experts. So well, years okay. later, <laughs> years later, when the, when lawsuits were happening and those types of things, we started bringing in people to educate us. We started recognizing Oh my goodness, we don't we're not trained to deal with people who have had sexual abuse and trauma. Exactly. We don't know anything about these well, things, but we thought we were the experts. And the reason you probably thought you were the experts is because you were doing everything biblically. You were just following the Bible. Exactly. And so you if you use the you, Bible you write as a off rule book. Yeah, you write off any other area. Right. Of you could well, yeah. we well, we just we only we have the Bible. We look to the Bible for our guidance, but yeah. the Bible doesn't have reveal the wisdom that you need to deal with sexual harassment and, and sexual abuse. <laughs> There's it's a true. million things that the Bible no, doesn't true. address. And, and that was my experience is that, you know, they get so everything had to be by the Bible. So we're going to deal with this biblically. We're not going to call the police or whatever, you know, right. And, and, and that whole attitude uh, can be very destructive because you, you can't, you can't step back and go, okay, what is really a, a, the wisest thing to do in this situation? Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and also throw out the, the, um, the problem with saying that women can't be leaders. I mean, really, I mean, there's a biblical case that women can be leaders and, mm -hmm. and they wouldn't go there. But mm -hmm. um, later on, 
um, you uh, uh, deconstruct it from evangelical Christianity. And I'm just curious, what tipped the scale for you and, and making that, that kind of a change and saying, okay, I'm not an evangelical, and maybe you're, you're saying you're not a Christian now. Where, where, what tipped the scale and, and where did you land? Yeah. Um, well, you know, my, my unraveling was so connected to my own story, an experience in the church, um, having all the things that I had built my, my life on and all the people who had handed me the faith that I held, <laughs> having all of that blow up in so many different ways was, was quite traumatic. And I, I think I'm still unpacking, uh, yeah, right. you know, the, the fallout of that in, in many different ways. Um, you know, even still being able to process and allow for anger. I was working with a, I, I coach people with helping them think through their message and, with you know authors and people who want to to spread ideas to others and i i collaborate with a enneagram coach and brought her into one of the the cohorts that we were doing and she was just talking about the importance of of feeling anger you know that that that's part of the process of being able to stand up for yourself and so on and i just realized like i i'm still kind of giving myself permission to be ticked off like right. you know like this was really unhealthy i was i was both a part of the problem. And I, you know, I hurt other people, but I was also hurt by the leadership model. I was also mm -hmm. betrayed in different ways. And, you know, it's hard to, it's hard for me to even, you know, kind of sort through all of that, but essentially, you know, the, the bad fruit of sovereign grace started to bubble to the surface through anonymous blogs. Right. And these blogs started telling all these stories of misuse of leadership, times where people were put out of churches because they disagreed with the pastors, and then these stories of sexual abuse and things being grievously mishandled. Mm -hmm. And that started happening, and it was, it was happening at a time where our pastoral team was wrestling with our relationship with the apostles because they were they were exerting control and I was now the senior pastor and behind the scenes there was this un you know people didn't know this but a breakdown in relationship between the apostles which was very disillusioning for me and that you know really harmed my relationship with CJ because I saw a side of him <laughs> that you was didn't very see before yeah well yeah I just did I you know all the things that he'd taught about humility and all those kinds of things were not actually happening in these other relationships. Mm -hmm. And, and so all those things combined started leading to this questioning of saying, wait a second, are we actually the good guys here? You know, are we, <laughs> are we, are we actually right. doing something that, and, and so there was a huge struggle within the movement between those who said, let's try to listen to the stories that people are sharing. And those who wanted to clamp down and say, it's gossip, it's slander. Pastors right. still have the answers. Don't listen to the, you know, so there was a, right. a power struggle that happened there. And then Brent Detweiler launched these private documents that kind of told the backstory from his perspective. And of course, right. like I'm anybody, familiar with those. Yeah. He's, he's completely, he's completely biased. 
um, because he's he's very much a part of the story. He built this movement, but then he he got you know essentially kind of sidelined and had nothing to lose, and then just changed his mind and and felt like he needed to be you know God's instrument to bring CJ down. So he launched all of this out there, and it was just this public mayhem. It was our church finding out things about the history of the church. It was finding out that these people who uh, you know, we're supposed to be best friends and apostle buddies or actually, you know, didn't like each other and were warring behind the scenes. And the two founding pastors had this huge falling out and there'd been manipulation and threats and all these things. It was just like, it was, all it was once, like, right. you know, people would say it was like finding out that your parents were getting a divorce and they'd been beating each other. And for all these years, you thought you had this ideal family. Yeah. And so this whole structure that was built on trust, trust of the pastors, trust of the apostles, trust of CJ, um, you know, in a, in a weekend <laughs> was just shattered. And I was kind of left to answer the questions and make this painful decision of, will you tell what you know, or will you just defend CJ and the apostolic team. And I just refused to just go along anymore. And mm -hmm. I tried to be honest and I felt like sunlight was going to be the best antiseptic. And that just led to a complete shattering of my relationship with CJ, with other people on the team. There was, you know, this exodus of people and leaders and all these things. And, and so all of that, um, you know, it, it was inc incredibly disillusioning. It was an incredible wake-up call. Um, I was exhausted. And then the the sexual abuse lawsuits hit. And it was another layer of distrust and another layer of um, confusion internally um, and angst and pastors leaving and all, you know, just all the kind of, you know, terrible things that come along with that, not to mention the the stories of these victims and the sadness there for them and the trauma that they experienced. So it's just, it was, it led to me making a decision to step away from being a pastor. I, 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 I needed a, um, a sabbatical. Yeah. Big <laughs> I, time. I, I essentially, we went and met with a counselor who was like a crisis counselor and, and he really helped me to see how um, I'd been living out CJ's story for my life for years then, not your own story. Yeah, not my own story. And then also just that how damaging and unhealthy the environment of Sovereign Grace was. Mm -hmm. And and I kind of had this thought of, well, because our church has left Sovereign Grace now and we're, you know, we're trying to lead something different, we can fix this. And it was just eye-opening to realize you've been trained in this. This is the form of leadership you know. Um, you're working with the tools that have been handed to you by someone who you really no longer trust or respect. And you're in no condition to, to be leading other people in a, in a church like this. Uh, not to mention the fact that you're just like ready to implode yourself, you know, right, my yeah. family, my, my ex-wife right. was exhausted. We were just completely exhausted. So leaving that stepping away. And I'm so grateful for the, the congregation that was so supportive of us. So loving to us as we left, they were just really, That's and I great. still have such a, a love for the people of covenant life. There's so, so many covenant people. covenant life left P, uh, SGM and for a while. And then you, and then you left covenant life, right? Exactly. I, I stepped down and um, moved from 
Washington DC area to Vancouver, BC to go to a uh, graduate school of theology that they don't like to call themselves a seminary, but it's a seminary. Right. And um, I went to school there for three years and, and that was really kind of my if you you know, deconstruction was actually a, a big word at Regent before it became a catchphrase in kind of the post evangelical world. It was really right. this idea of, you know, you've been given all these ideas about faith. You need to take them apart and really test them and do that in a biblically faithful way but this is a place to deconstruct. And so Vancouver and Regent was that for me um, really. And, and it, but it wasn't because somebody taught me some like liberal, you know, interpretation of scripture or anything like that. It was really just the space, the space to not have to be a leader, the space not to have to, you know, defend certain things in the church, just to be a student, to be in a city where no one was, you know, placing expectations on me. And, you know, from the outside, people look at it and go, oh, gosh, you know, Josh moved to Vancouver, his family fell apart, his faith fell apart. What a sad story. I have the complete opposite perspective. Oh, I, know, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I view it it's as a very freeing thing. Yeah, co coming into freedom, having the space to actually admit what I wanted. Um, even yes, the pain of a marriage ending, I, you know, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But the space for two, you know, adults to say, you know what, we're going to part ways and we're going to lovingly co-parent our amazing kids. Like those were such needed things that needed to happen. And we, we never had the freedom to even admit that to ourselves in the past. And so, um, yeah, the, on the, the far side of that, I mean, the, the details of how that took place is there was a huge part of me revisiting the, the book. Um, recognizing that I disagreed with my own book, unpublishing it, uh, realizing I didn't want to be a pastor anymore. Publicly, you know, my, my marriage um, coming apart and publicly acknowledging that and, and kind of the next step of like all these markers of identity take, you know, taken away from me and finally being able to go, you know what, I don't even, I don't even know that I could call myself a Christian. I'm not trying to defend or live according to uh, at least the version of Christianity that I had been practicing. I, I right. don't even want to, I don't even want to be identified with that anymore. I don't want to try to defend what I'm doing. I want to affirm my gay friends. Um, I, I want to live a life of freedom that I don't know how to live constrained by this way of living and being and believing. And so stepping away from that for me has been, um, I mean, it caused some, some waves, but it was, it was such an important part of me saying uh, for me to figure out, who I am and what I want and what I believe I've got to, I've got to get away you, you gotta, from all these boxes, cut, cut those ties and get, get uh, the freedom to be open about other ways of looking at things. Exactly. I, I um, uh, you know, I, I understand exactly what you, where you went, you know, went through having gone through something very similar, but I, one, one, one uh, um, idea that came up or one uh, thought that came up was, you know, in evangelicalism, you were taught that, we have, we are the Christian way. We have figured it out. We are the true Christians. Yeah. So if you if you deconstruct from that, it's it would be natural to think, well, I just deconstructed from that. So how can I call myself a Christian? That's such a good point. Yeah. And so <laughs> it's like, hey, you know, of course, you know. So that's why I, when you said, oh, I I can't call myself a Christian anymore, I said I, that makes sense because it was drilled into us that we're the only what the the true Christians. So if you deconstruct that, then you must not be a Christian. 
of course, there's other ways to look at it. There's, there's more, uh, in my mind, there's more historical uh, threads of Christianity uh, out there, the Eastern streams and, you know, some people call progressive Christianity. There's other ways of looking at uh, the mm -hmm. Jesus story that are totally different uh, uh, from evangelicalism. So keep, you know, keep an open mind for, for no, I love that perspective. And I think yeah. that, I think that's so insightful because you're exactly right. I, I embraced a form of Christianity that said, this is, this is the true faith. And it never blatantly said it, but what was clearly implied was these other forms of Christianity. They're, they're not, they're not real. They're not, we were dismissive, they're, they're dismissive. Yeah. I right. mean, Catholics, oh gosh, of course, boy, yeah. you know, uh, but then these Christians that are not committed to the Bible and certain, you know, the certain even and, versions yeah. of the Bible who are right. not committed to yeah. male only leadership, right. who are not, you know, gospel centered enough. Yeah. Who are not, you know, just who, who are firm, firm gay and uh, oh lesbian my community, you know, absolutely. Right. <laughs> they're not even they're It's not even a possibility that they're actually really, really, right. uh, you know, right. in the fold. And so when you when you see all the problems in your version, it does feel like you're giving up the, the faith completely. Right. It's true. So um, I'm very curious what the backlash has been from your family, your parents, your friends. Hmm. the church. I mean, I know I could tell you stories about what I went through, but what's it been like for you? Yeah. You know, I feel very fortunate in that, first of all, my family, my immediate family of my dad and siblings have just been so beautiful. Really? That's great. Yeah. I, um, I mean, they've expressed their disappointment as they express their love. They've, um, you know, I know that it, it breaks their heart in different ways, but uh, they've they've also just been present and loving. Um, and so I'm really grateful for that. I've not felt judged or shamed or excluded in any way by my my family. And um, I've had some great conversations with my dad. And, uh, you know, I know he wants and hopes that I'll I'll return to the, you know, the faith and um, but they, I, so they still think you're falling away and well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think they have a hope that, that this is, um, but there, there are only a couple of options when it comes to somebody <laughs> who's, I understand, right? you All know, right. you, you know, the theology of it, it's either it, it's black never, and white. So you're never not... really with us or yeah, they're, right. they're, you know, yep. they're, they belong to God, but they're, they're going through a season of, of rebellion, but they're going to yes, come back. They're going to come back. Yeah. Right. Um, right and and but and I but I you know and I just I think I I just want to acknowledge this that within that worldview, um, you know that that hope and that desire to see someone return I do think is is an expression of love, you know within that worldview it's not loving to be like oh well, I'm happy he's thinking for himself and you know all religions lead to the same place or whatever you know obviously when you really believe these things you want people to be in heaven for eternity you want them to come back to Jesus. And so within that framework, um, I, I understand the reaction of a lot of people. And then I would say with friends, like moving all the way across the country, having several years being removed from that gave some distance. I mean, I think it, it revealed in a lot of cases that a lot of the, the friendships we had were, were more 
you know, geographical and based on roles at churches and those kinds of things. Yes. And it's and like they, when you, they can be, they can be very superficial. Yeah. yeah and, and I think that's the true in a lot of jobs. I mean, I think it, yeah. it was hard at first to realize like, Oh, yeah. we weren't actually best friends and exactly. so on. We, we yeah. just worked together. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, but yeah. I would say also, uh, you know, people expressing love. Um, and I, I've, I've not experienced a lot of judgment or shame from actual friends and, and people that I had relationships with on a, on a broader scale, you know, I think it, I just like a lot of other people who have deconstructed publicly, you become a symbol of something. It's not, it's not that you're even a person anymore. You're just a symbol of unfaithfulness. You're a symbol of some deconstruction movement or whatever. And so people say, all kinds of silly things about you on the internet and they react in different ways. Yes. Um, you, yeah. You, ne but, you uh, never were a believer to begin with maybe, sure. or yeah. you're a heretic, you're falling away, you're an apostate. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know if exactly. you've gotten those terms, but. Those well, I feel common. like you, you went through this process a, a much earlier than I did. And then yeah. at a time where there wasn't the same kind of like community online for people to have these conversations or podcasts or all these kinds of things. Oh yeah. So I feel like it's much more challenging for someone that kind of walked through this questioning earlier on. Yeah. Yeah. It's much better. There's a lot of support out there. Um, there's, I mean, even deconstruction workshops. <laughs> and do you, do you have a deconstruction workshop? I'm developing one. I've, I haven't actually launched it. I've just uh, launched uh, some, some videos that kind of introduce it and wow. uh, some content and I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to get into it, but uh, the problem is, is I have a day job. So <laughs> did I, uh... you, do you know the story of me um, developing a course? and just how that uh, yeah i was going to ask you about really that. exploded in my face well i don't know how it exploded but i was going to ask you, you it seems like you have some new classes that you're offering and well what's, so what's going the, on well this so the story that i was actually wanting to tell you was i last summer um because i had so many people who were writing me saying hey we're you know what are resources and can you know can we can you talk to us more about your experience of deconstruction in this way and all those types of things. I decided I was going to do a course. Um, I called it reframe your story. Mm -hmm. And it was like a four week course where I would walk through these kind of key components of saying like, you know, let's look at the identity that you were given the script you were given, you know, what do you need to let go of there sorting through different aspects of that recognizing places that you've changed and what instigated that. So it was, it was very basic, very simple, but I was going yeah. to be bringing in different kind of guest uh, experts and people along the way. But it's, it's really, it, it is actually very, it was a very difficult experience for me. Essentially what took place was I, in my day job, I run a marketing company. Right. And um, I essentially did for this course, what I do for, my clients all the time. I, mm -hmm. I marketed it. I, you know, created a marketing funnel with a lead generating PDF and I, you know, kind of sold it for here's what we're going to do and all those kinds of things. And I was, I was going to give this away for free, but I decided, you know what? I don't know people take this seriously if I don't charge for it. Like I want yeah. them to feel mm -hmm. like this is really valuable. Right. And so I said, you know, it's $275, but if you've been hurt by my books or you've been hurt by purity culture, it's either it's free for you. Just type in gift when you're checking out or whatever. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, this is going to be great. This is, you know, I was, I want to be helpful to people. And so 
<laughs> and it just was like all the people who had not thought about me for years, this just exploded oh, into their view. And they were I like, see. Josh Harris stopped being a Christian. Now he's charging people to teach them how to, how to deconstruct. Oh, what, yeah. what is this son of a bitch doing? <laughs> oh my gosh. And it was, it was a really wild thing for me because I, I kind of thought, oh, you know, we'll start out, we'll have like 20 people in it, we'll walk through this and so on. But it just, the attention that it got in literally, you know, 24 to 48 hours, we had like 375 people sign up, all but four of them took the free gift option, which I was like, oh, this is great. People are, you know, receiving this and they really want this. But all these other people from both the Christian community, super pissed off of just like, you know, you're a grifter, you're trying to make money off of people's deconstruction, who are you? And then in the deconstruction community, a similar negative reaction of who the hell do you think you are? You, you know, you join this movement and you're setting yourself up as a teacher and a guru. And, and it was like this massive pushback. And I, I just, I just like shut down. I was like, oh my goodness. Like I, it, it kind of felt like the worst days of the, the church, uh, the church, uh, you know, problems and, and public meltdowns and those types of things. And, and the other thing in it is that it actually, I think what was so hard was there was so much acrimony, but in the midst of that, I also knew that there was like, there was truth. <laughs> like there was, there was critique that was coming, which is Josh, you're doing this too soon. Yeah. You just you've just in the last couple of years been going through this. Your your impulse to be helpful is actually not good. Like you're trying to to you know talk about this and lead other people in this just because there's this audience that wants it. Like they're all asking for this, right? But that doesn't mean that that's that's supposed to be you. It doesn't mean that you're supposed to provide this. So it was, it was actually a really painful process of me being like I want to be helpful but and all these people are, are just assuming the worst motives, but actually I shouldn't try to do this right now. This isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. Other people can lead in these ways. And so I've actually really pulled back. I, I canceled the course and um, I, I just tried to acknowledge the mistakes in the way that I unfolded that, but also just acknowledge, you know what? This isn't the time for me to do this. Other people can step forward. And um, I've pulled back from in a sense, the whole deconstruction world. I, I love a lot of the work that's being done there, but it just, it just kind of opened my eyes to see a lot of the very black and white um, power grabbing kinds of, of ways of approaching things that I saw in the church. They're still here. They're still in us. <laughs> oh yeah. And, yeah. and so sure. I just, for me, I've just realized, you know what, I'm going to focus on my business. I'm going to try to highlight other voices on this topic where I can. I mean, having a conversation like this, you know, with you is amazing. I, I actually hope you do your course. I think that'd be fantastic because you've been, you know, you've been at this a lot longer, but for me, I'm just recognizing, you know what, I'm going to leave this conversation to other people and I'm just going to focus on, you know, my, my own work and business, which is completely in the business zone and where I can highlight other voices on, on the topic of changing your, your thoughts and beliefs. I'm going to do that, but that was my, uh, my deconstruction course experience. I gotcha. That's quite an experience. Well, I appreciate your honesty. I mean, um, it's, it's a tough, I, 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 uh, I understand both sides of this. Um, uh, but you know, you, 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 you have good motives. You wanted to help people and, 
there's nothing wrong with charging money to cover your costs. Mm. Um, I mean, the people who probably criticized you uh, support a whole movement that is basically, you know, pastors and leaders are getting paid by mm. <laughs> they charge yeah. for their services yeah. and their teaching. Yeah. So, uh, and then, and I, re I really thought it was a good idea to, to just make it free for anyone who says, Hey, if I got burned by, by me, just make it free. I, I've thought about uh, charging a uh, less amount of money, but also having, if anyone uh, doesn't want to um, pay or can't pay or can't afford mm -hmm. it, just send me an email and, you know, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a scholarship or something. That's so cool. That's you really know, good. Yeah. Something like that. But uh, I have, I, I hope I can get mine off the ground and uh, um, uh, it's, it really is needed because mm -hmm. um, there's just, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of material out there. Keith Giles has a, has a really good one called Square One. I don't know if you've heard about him, but listen, oh. listen to my podcast with Keith and you'll learn about his. But, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And so there's, there's a, it's a real big need out there. And uh, I think it's a huge need. And I, and I think too, I think, you know, having to wrestle with the realities of infrastructure and the cost to support that and, you know, freeing people up to, to do the work is just a huge part of it. I mean, the church, if you've been a part of the church, you understand it's, there's a huge business side to it, oh, you yeah. know, with all of the, the mm -hmm. talk of the spiritual nature of it and so on, it's a huge business and the church is able to have the reach it does because of the financial side, because people are dedicated workers, because they're throwing tons of money at this. And so, you know, my hope is that there could be communities and, and, teaching platforms and resources and so on created to help people who are moving into more free, open ways of thinking about things, regardless of whether that means they're still religious or not. But for that to happen, there has to be, there have to be new ways of thinking, new structures that allow for people to be supported funds to, you know, the, yeah, the energy right. of money to be used to, no. to kind of push forward different ideas. Right. It's true. I mean, you have to have a model that that's sustainable. That's um, true. Yeah. Right. So uh, w one last question. Um, what is, you know, uh, do you still have a desire to, to, to follow the love ethic of Christ? What, what, you know, what, you know, mm. saying you, I don't consider myself a Christian anymore. doesn't really mean anything to me unless mm. I understand what a person believes what matters most. Mm. So how would you address that? Yeah, I think I'm still trying to, to figure that out, I, I think trying to figure out where those ideas about love, I, it's hard for me to sort through because the love ethic of Christ is so overshadowed by the opposite in so many ways in right. my experience. Right. And so figuring out what, what the core is that you're wanting to come back to and so on. I um, read a book recently by uh, a gentleman named Jack Bergstrand, um, who wrote a book called Christianity Without Dogma. And uh, he's, a, he's really a, a business executive and consultant in the business world who, who brought that, that framework of thinking to examine faith. He deconstructed years ago, and he's trying to, to sort through things there and, and provide a, a model for people to, to think differently and, and embrace a Christianity without dogma. But that's, that is what he is, is holding on to, which is really the, right. the ethic of love. Like mm -hmm. the, it, it all boils down to loving, you know, one another. 
So I think that's, that's beautiful. And I think I'm, I, I'm still in process of saying, you know, how does that inform my ideas of service, my ideas of what it means to, to give back to others. Um, I, I feel like in a lot of ways, I, there's a little bit of a void there and I'm, 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 I'm rebuilding. Yeah. But you're, you're on a path, you're on a journey and it's not over yet. So yeah, you, you'll, I mean, the process, deconstruction is one thing and reconstruction is another <laughs> mm. and that can take a long time too, but it, yeah. it, it's, uh, you know, some, some people will want, will want you to, um, land on something that's acceptable, but mm. it's okay to be, you know, like in, in limbo for a while as you're figuring things out. So, so anyways, we've gone a long ways, uh, Josh, I really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, uh, do you have a website or anything you want to point people towards uh, if they're interested in learning more about your journey? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I do uh, talk about some of these things on Instagram. So my handle on Instagram is at Harris Josh, okay. so my last name, and then Josh Harris right. Josh. And then uh, my website is joshharris.com, where I talk about uh, the work I do coaching people with their their messaging and yeah, your marketing uh, company, right? Yeah, the marketing company is Clear and Loud, so that's where we work with businesses. Oh, and, I see. Okay, so, yeah, so clearandloud.com, clearandloud.com, and joshharris.com. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Good. Well, this has been great. I appreciate you joining me, um, and we'll have to get together and talk more about uh, some of these things uh, later on. Uh, Josh Harris, uh, we've had a great time talking to you at the Spiritual Brew Pub, and uh, we wish the best of luck to you. I really appreciate that, Michael. Thank you. Okay. And folks, uh, we'll see you next time. Uh, enjoy responsibly. The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.